Well, please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. This morning, Lord willing, we'll go from verse 69 down to the end of the chapter as we look at Peter's denials there in the courtyard of Caiaphas. Matthew 26, beginning in verse 69. The word of the Lord says this, Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out the entrance... Another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, For the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. In July of 1553, Queen Mary Tudor took over England and had one great goal in mind, that is to make England Catholic again. In her efforts to revive the Catholic influence in England, she earned her nickname, Bloody Mary. Bloody Mary's reign of tyranny did not happen in a vacuum, though. You can go back to King Henry. Many of you are familiar uh, with King Henry, his desire to have a divorce. He was scared that his wife wouldn't produce a son, so he wanted to divorce her and marry someone else. The Catholic Church said no. And so King Henry said, well, then we just will break our relationship then. And so in defiance of the Catholic Church, in defiance of the Pope, King Henry became the functional Pope of the Church of England, the Anglican Church. While not everything King Henry did was helpful for the purposes of the Protestant movement in England. One thing he did do in God's providence was to pick up a right-hand man named Thomas Cranmer. Cranmer, when it came to the Protestant debate, was solidly on the Protestant side of the Reformation. And he saw his service to the king as a wonderful opportunity to make great gains in England to fight against the Catholic influence and establish a Protestant church there in England. And so Cranmer served as well as he could And then when Henry died, Cranmer's influence continued as Henry's son, Edward, took over as king at just nine years old. Edward would then become the first, it seems, convictionally Protestant king, while also being the first one raised as a Protestant. Edward would take the work of Henry and finalize it and and make the separation official between the Anglican Church and the Catholic Church from Rome. It was under King, King Edward's reign that Thomas Cranmer continued his Protestant movement influence. And then when Edward died at 15, so his reign was somewhere around six years, he had the the thought that I need my incredibly wise cousin, Lady Jane Grey, to be the one that becomes queen. So he set that up and then he died and she took over and reigned for all of nine days. After nine days of Queen uh, Mary Jane Grey's reign, Edward's very Roman Catholic half-sister, Mary Tudor, deposed Jane, and her first act as queen, Bloody Mary's first act, was to have Jane now deposed and her husband executed publicly for their defiance to the Roman Catholic Church. Bloody Mary would earn her nickname as she would go on to kill over 300 Protestants who rebelled against her 
in the Catholic Church. She killed countless more through means of starvation and other cruel tactics like that. Of all the martyrs that she created, few have stood out as clearly as Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer. Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer were two of her early martyrs. These Protestant men were sizable thorns in her side. And to set an example to all Protestants in England that you will not be tolerated unless you join us, she had these two men sent, not just arrested, but sent to the stake to be burned. To make an even better example... Mary took Cranmer, who had been so influential over Henry and Edward, she took him and forced him, while under arrest, to watch the burning of Latimer and Ridley. So you've got Nicholas Ridley, Hugh Latimer being burned, you've got Thomas Cranmer having to watch it. Cranmer was forced to observe as Ridley and Latimer were led to the stake. He was forced to watch as these brothers were tied to the same stake. He stared as each one of them had bags of gunpowder tied around their neck. He looked as they were fastened, and and the eyes of his heart, his mind's eye, had had the images burned on them as they would literally go up in flames. Sticks and, and debris were piled up around them to make sure the flames really engulfed them. As you can imagine, this weighed heavy on Cranmer. It had an incredible impact on him. And so when Mary approached Cranmer and said, I'll offer you freedom if you'll just recant from your Protestant beliefs, And Cranmer took the deal. After years of influencing King Henry, King Edward, bringing biblical reform to the Church of England, Queen Mary's persecution of Protestants influenced Cranmer to abandon his faith. He did so officially by signing a document to make it clear that he was abandoning the biblical gospel. Sadly, this is just one of many examples we could come, we could gather from church history. Christians who at one point have such an apparent white-hot passion for the Lord. Men and women used by God, as it seems in his church. And then the unthinkable happens. They quit being Christians. They go back and say, well, I don't believe that anymore. In a moment of testing, they fail, and some fail harder than others. It's my guess that few people have fallen as hard as the apostle Peter, what we just read in Matthew Peter's fall was shockingly bad, especially when you consider how he spent so much time so close to the Lord, and it was that Peter that we see doing what we saw in Matthew 26. Peter, whose name means rock, we see him crumble here when pressure is put on him. And Matthew tells us about Peter's fall, his failure, his abandonment of Christ here, not primarily, though we will do it, not primarily to compare him with Judas. The better comparison is let's look at Peter compared to Christ. As you watch what happens downstairs in Caiaphas' house with Peter, you've got to remember in Matthew, I know we're parachuting in here, but upstairs Christ is being interrogated. He's in his Jewish uh, circle of hearings going on. You want to call it a trial, but if you read it, it's not a trial. It's a hearing. They're just there to tell him how much he's going to suffer. They're in Caiaphas's palace, his house. It's a two-story house where a courtyard, kind of like a tennis court, uh, that area would be surrounded by a, a walkway with rooms upstairs. And upstairs is Jesus being interrogated by the Sanhedrin. Downstairs is what we're reading about Peter. And Matthew's wanting you to see the contrast. Peter is below. Jesus is above. Peter is proving unfaithful. Jesus is proving to be perfectly faithful. 
Peter lies about the truth in order to avoid physical suffering, Jesus bears witness to the truth and embraces whatever physical suffering comes his way. That is the contrast that Matthew is setting up for us. While Jesus is upstairs bearing witness to the truth from threats from the great high priest himself, Peter is down below crumbling under the slightest bit of casual accusation from a slave girl. These two men could not be more different in these moments. That's the contrast you're meant to emphasize more. There is a contrast with Peter and Judas, but this is the greater contrast. And if you can get this into your thinking as we go through this passage, you're going to walk away with much more than just don't be Peter. And that's helpful. Don't be Peter. If you hear me say anything else, don't be Peter in this moment. But in your moments of temptation, in your moments of failure, when you have done similar things, you need something better than you should not have been like Peter. And Matthew's got it for you here in Matthew 26. So we're going to walk through the passage and see the three times that Peter denies Christ. Then we're going to pull back and end with three parts of application. And Matthew has so much treasure in store for us. Let's begin there in verse 69 and see, number one, that Peter confesses his ignorance. Number one, Peter confesses his ignorance. Verse 69, now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. Now again, we're just jumping into here. Peter has been referenced already, but Matthew saved it for now. Matthew told you what's going on upstairs. Now he's putting his focus downstairs to show you what Peter is doing while Jesus is going through what he's going through upstairs. When you compare the other Gospels with Matthew here, you get this idea that Peter's made his way into a courtyard. Uh, Again, um, in my head, I just picture bright lights and stuff. They didn't have LEDs and all that. They're lit by candles and torches. And so as he walks in, it's dimly lit. It's somewhere around 2 a.m. It's hard to nail down exactly. And he walks into this courtyard to warm himself by the fire. And you got to remember, this is Caiaphas' house. This isn't a public park. The people that Peter's going to warm himself near are people who are clearly on Caiaphas' side in this whole Jesus debate. So Peter's warming himself in a fire. He only got in, according to the Gospel of John, because John himself, most likely it was John, um, let him in. John's family apparently knew someone in Caiaphas' family. So Peter was able to get into this uh, palace of Caiaphas under the protection of John. And here he is warming himself around a fire. And as it flickers, as the light begins to shine on Peter's face in different ways, this little slave girl, somewhere around 13 years old, she starts to piece things together. Again, comparing the four Gospels, it seems like she's been watching him for a little while. I don't know if she saw him in town earlier in the week. I don't know what made her think there's something about this guy. But finally, as the light hits him right, she looks at him and says, hey, you were one of the ones with Jesus. And she adds, the Galilean. Again, just to set some context for you, Caiaphas' house is in Jerusalem, about 100 miles south of the area known as Galilee. Galilee was where most of the disciples were from. It was where most of Jesus' ministry took place for nearly three and a half years. Galilee was ministry headquarters for Jesus. And this little slave girl, with some implied contempt, tells Peter, hey, you were with Jesus. You were one of the ones with him, the the Galilean. 
And she says it in front of a group of people, so everyone is listening. Peter's caught off guard with this accusation, and he simply says, I don't know what you're talking about, verse 70. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. Instead of giving a plain yes or no, he pleads ignorance. We're reading this knowing it's an obvious lie. This is his first act of betrayal. Peter should have heard these words come out, been pricked in his conscience, and sought forgiveness in Christ. He should have seen his misstep here as he spoke and gone to Christ, or at least gone to the other disciples and and remembered the promises of forgiveness in Christ, but he doesn't. He doesn't deny himself, which is what Jesus said all disciples must do, right? If you want to follow me, you will deny yourself or else you can't be my disciple. Well, Peter's not denying himself in this moment. Also remember, it was just, again, about five hours earlier that they're in the upper room and Peter promised this. He said, though they all fall away because of you, I never will. He went on to say, even if I must die with you, I'll never deny you. That was just about five hours earlier. And here he is now approached by a powerless slave girl and he crumbles. So number one, Peter confesses his ignorance. Secondly, Peter goes on. And he crosses his heart. When I was younger, we would make sure people knew we were telling the truth. We would say something like, I crossed my heart, right? Which is a shortened version of, I cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle, what? In my eye, which is the weirdest thing. It's like, I'm telling you the truth. If I'm not, I'm going to die. And when I'm dead, you can take a needle and poke my eyeball. Jesus said, just let your yes be yes and no be no. It's a really weird way, but that's what Peter's doing here in one sense. He's crossing his heart. He's swearing, I am telling the truth. And there's an implied, if not, may God kill me. Look at verse 71. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him. And she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. So Peter's moving away from the fire. He seems to be headed for the exit. And on his way out of the courtyard, he has another slave girl approach. And this time, she doesn't talk to him. She talks to the crowd, almost pointing at Peter, letting them know he is with Jesus. He is with Jesus of Nazareth. Again, you can get a sense of disdain from this. Jesus was a Nazarene. That was not a compliment. Nazareth at this time was this tiny little town, about 400 people, which is around the same size as my dad's hometown, Toonsboro, Georgia. My dad's hometown of Toonsboro had the Swampland Opera House. They had Swampland beauty pageants, and you could be Miss Swampland if you wanted to. Um, It's kind of like Mayberry mixed with Duck Dynasty mixed with Honey Boo Boo. That, That is where my dad's from. And this would have been the idea of Nazareth. There's a reason you don't hear doctors on TV with southern accents. Think about it. You're going in for serious heart surgery. You don't want someone coming in with my kind of accent to say, I'm going to take care of you. That's not what they present on TV because there's a stigma of that kind of accent doesn't go with these kind of people. So one of the attacks people would have on Jesus is, aren't you the Nazarene? They would have viewed him as being from the area that I consider part of the Hellenized Hicks. Aren't you with Jesus, the Nazarene? And look at Peter's response in verse 72. Again, he denied it with an oath, saying, I do not know the man. In his second denial, Peter cranks it up a notch. Rather than just saying, I don't know what you're talking about. This time he seals it with an oath. 
He says, I do not know the man. And I know this is uncomfortable to hear, but he's saying, I swear to God, I don't know the man. And he's being literal here. Refusing to tell the truth and refusing to even say his name, Peter says, I don't know the man. Refusing to acknowledge his nature, he says, I don't know the man. And he says, I swear I don't know him. I swear I'm not lying. Peter has gone from confessing Jesus as the Messiah, as the Son of God, to now swearing he doesn't even know that man. This is an unimaginable turn of events in Peter's mind. Remember, five hours earlier, I swear I'll never deny you. Not only is Peter doing what he swore he would never do, but he's done it twice, and he's not done. So Peter confesses his ignorance. Peter crosses his heart. And now we see the pinnacle of this tragedy. Peter curses his God. Some of you are saying, well, he he curses his God. Yes, verse 73. After a little, while the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Remember, Peter denied Jesus first by the fire. He did it again near the exit. Matthew says after a little while. Luke says after about an hour. So just to give you some time uh, parameters here. Nearly an hour has passed since that second betrayal, since that second denial. And they say, look, you, you are certainly with Jesus. And their proof is his accent. Again, Peter is a Galilean. He can't change that. Ironically, the more he verbally denied being with Jesus, the Galilean, the more they knew he was with Jesus the Galilean because he just kept talking and people don't talk like that from around here. People talk like that from Galilee. I remember when I first moved to L.A. from Georgia. I'm now 12 years removed, which you can sound, you can hear it's not quite as strong as it used to be. But I remember when I first moved out to Grace in California, one of the elders there nicknamed me, huh? Because every time I talked to him, he would just respond with, huh? <laughs> And so how foolish would it have been for me to make arguments that I'm a, I'm a Canadian citizen, born and raised. I, mean, I am Canadian. Like, they go, wait, look, the more you talk, the more we know you're lying. That's what's going on with Peter. His accent had betrayed him, revealed that he indeed was a Galilean. And the only reason, somewhere around 3 a.m., that a Galilean would be in Jerusalem, in Caiaphas' house, as if you're with that other Galilean that we have here, Jesus, who's upstairs. So Peter is dead to rights. There's absolutely no escape for Peter. But as you know, when people are trapped in a lie, they don't always recognize there's no escape. They try to make one. Lying always demands more lying in order for you to defend that lie rather than just repenting and come clean. So Peter decides to dig his heels in even further. He denies Jesus again, but this time it's more intense than often appears as we read the passage. Verse 74, then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. Now, first of all, I've gotten this question before. When he began to curse and swear, that's not talking about explicit language. It's not talking about crude language. He's not resorting to foul words, expletives, in order to make his point seem serious. That's not what he's doing. He's literally swearing and literally calling down curses. And if you read the ESV, which is what I preach out of, this is not a knock, I I recommend everyone uh, compare versions. A lot of you in your Bible studies are taught to do that. 
Um, take multiple English versions. You can do it online for free. They even make printed ones with them parallel. And you can pick up on things like this. One of the things I noticed is that the ESV writes that he began to invoke a curse on himself. Almost none of the other English versions say on himself. And when you check what Matthew wrote, he doesn't say on himself. It's just so well established in our thinking that it was on himself that they put on himself. And full disclosure, that's what most people think he was doing. I'll admit I'm fine being in the minority on this one. This is an in-house discussion. This is not a dividing line between faithful Christians and unfaithful. But Matthew just wrote that Peter began to curse. And you as the reader are supposed to ask, whom? Again, most people think it was himself, as the ESV says. But this is written by Matthew in a way that it's incomplete. Imagine if I came up to you after church and I said, hey, I'm about to. And you would say, what? <laughs> you're, you didn't finish that sentence. That's how you're supposed to read Matthew here. Now, you may fill it in with on himself, and that's fine. But Matthew wrote, he just began to curse. And the question I'm, re- I'm asking is, who? I'm convinced from the context that his curses were actually directed at Jesus. Now, again, this is not a dividing line between faithful and unfaithful brothers, but it seems Peter's so committed to having nothing to do with Jesus, he resorts now to repeating his swear and adding curses on the one everyone else is cursing. Again, remember, Peter began by claiming he was ignorant. He cranks it up by swearing he doesn't know Jesus. One of the things that motivates me to read it this way is that swearing he makes in a second denial would have had an implied curse on himself if he's lying. So it doesn't make any sense to repeat it in the third one. He seems to crank it up even further. This third denial is most intense. Peter repeats the oath, but he adds to it curses. I don't know him. I swear to God, I don't know him. He's a blasphemer. He's an insurrectionist. He deserves the wrath of the Jews and the Romans and even God himself. I don't know that man. And this is how desperate Peter is to avoid being associated with Jesus. He's willing to hurl curses on him, saying, I don't even know the man. Verse 74, and immediately the rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So just picture as best as you can, Peter is saying these words, and at that time, this rooster calls out. His mind is flooded with words that came from Christ just five hours earlier. You're in Matthew 26, go back to verse 34. Look at verse 34 where Jesus said to him, to Peter, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Jesus told them all, you will all abandon me. You'll geographically leave me. But Peter, not only will you do that, you'll distance yourself from me verbally. You'll deny me three times before the rooster crows, a.k.a. before the sun rises. And now in verse 75, Peter remembers these words, prompted by the rooster crowing, but that's not all that prompted him. That's all Matthew gives us, and that's fine. That was Matthew's purposes. But in Luke 22, verse 61 says this, after he records the the rooster called out, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord. So Luke writes that on this third denial... Peter hears the rooster calling out, and at the same time, 
he sees Jesus looking at him. They lock eyes. That's my assumption. If we read that Jesus looked at him, someone else must have looked at him looking at him. And I'm assuming it's Peter. So Jesus has been moved from somewhere upstairs. He, he was taken to a holding place until the sun would come up. They'd have their last hearing and then take him over to Pilate. And it seems as he's being moved, Peter's in the, the peak of his denials. I swear I don't know that man. I'm cursing him. He's just a man from Nazareth in Galilee. I have nothing to do with him. And as he says that, the rooster calls out and he locks eyes with Christ. He sees the one that called him out of darkness into light. He sees the one who promised to make him a fisher of men. He sees the one who's spoken nothing but words of life to him. He sees the one that he truly did confess as the Christ, the Son of God in Matthew 16. He sees that one and his eyes lock with him. And he could hear the sound of his own demise and the rooster's crow. And what do you expect besides what he did? Verse 75, and he went out and wept bitterly. Again, Peter, the rock, is crushed. However highly he thought of himself earlier is now replaced with brokenness and lowliness, misery that he has never experienced before. The one that he loved the most, the one that he trusted his life with, the one that you swore you would never do this to, you just did it. Not only did you do it, you did it in multiple ways, you did it in more heinous ways than you ever thought imaginable. Again, if you're Peter, you've got to start wondering, is there any hope for me? Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 10, he said, persecution's coming. This is when he sends them out on their first short-term mission. And these are the words that Jesus told them. He says, so have no fear of them. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who, des- who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who's in heaven. As I read this, those words are ringing in my ears. I wonder if that was in Peter's. Is Peter assuming now he's just bound for hell? That's what Jesus said. I just denied him. And that gets us into our applications. Things that we can reasonably squeeze from a passage like this. So I want to give you three applications here at the end, two with Peter and one unexpected one. Number one, let the pride of Peter humble you. Let the pride of Peter humble you. As you watch Peter go through these things, take notes, not just notes of a sermon, but notes of what's going on in Scripture. Like Paul said of the wilderness wanderings of Israel, these things are recorded so that you avoid similar evils. You need this passage to rightly terrify you. Um, to rightly humble you and, and rely on Christ. Again, you've got to remember who did what we just read. Peter is always listed first in the list of disciples. Peter literally put his feet on water and walked. He saw Moses and Elijah. He saw a transfigured Jesus on the mountain. He heard the Father speak from heaven. He felt Jesus touch him as he lifted him in that moment. Peter had confessed Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, in Matthew 16. And still that Peter did this. Peter said, I'd rather die than deny you. And here he is denying Jesus to avoid death. The exact opposite of what he swore he would do. Again, to quote Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, take heed lest you too fall. Even in the most sanctified person in this room, there are still seeds 
of the most heinous sins that remain in your flesh. And whenever you overlook them, you underestimate them, you begin to water them. When you grow in your pride, you ignore these seeds and they start to grow. When you practically ignore your need for God's grace, remember the warning of Peter here. It's my understanding that besides the blasphemy of the Spirit, Jesus said that one sin is unforgivable. Outside of that, it's conceivable that a Christian could fall into any sin. And Peter thought his sins were behind him in one sense. There's no sin that bad that I'm ever going to do. He thought others would struggle with it, even the disciples around the table. He thought they would struggle, but he said, I never will. So he grew in his pride, and with that, he failed to humbly seek God's grace to remain vigilant against all sorts of sins. Again, maybe you can see this in your own life as opportunities to utilize God's grace, the means that he's supplied to us, as you spurn them little by little. Of course, others need to go to church. Of course, others need to read their Bible and pray. Of course, others, they need to do that. But I don't have to fight as hard for holiness anymore. I've been a Christian for a long time. Or I've been doing really well lately or whatever it is. You start to assume, like Peter, that you're invincible to the flesh, invincible to the world, and invincible to the devil. But remember, it was one glance that snowballed David into becoming a murderous, lying adulterer. It was a little slave girl who caused Peter, the rock, to crumble and deny his Lord three times with oaths and curses. So one of the lessons is you too must watch out for pride that can come stronger and faster and worse than you've ever imagined. Pride that leads you to think that you're beyond the need for God's grace like other Christians need. And So first of all, let the pride of Peter humble you. Number two, let the laziness of Peter awaken you. Let the laziness of Peter awaken you. Because Peter responded with such pride to Jesus' promise that he would fall away and deny him, that also led him to fail to prepare for what was coming. Jesus warned Peter of what was coming his way, and Peter's pride caused him to ignore that. He should not have kept his head high and chest out. He should have lowered himself and pled for God, give me the grace I need to endure what you just promised was coming. Again, Jesus told him to do this in Gethsemane. Remember, Jesus goes into Gethsemane. He leaves, at that time it's 11 because Judas is already gone. He leaves eight disciples, takes three of whom Peter's one of them, takes them further and tells them three times to pray. And the reason he said to pray, he doesn't say pray for me. He says pray that you won't enter temptation. Jesus told them three times to pray and three times they chose to sleep rather than prepare. And we understand this. It was a long day. At that time, it was somewhere around the middle of the night. They had already had the later meal than usual, the upper room. It was a larger meal than usual. It had been a really long week. I mean, you think of what happened from the time Jesus entered into Jerusalem on Sunday to this arrest happening at Gethsemane. You think about all that happened there, you'd be exhausted too. All kinds of other excuses are built into this. and What I'm noticing is Peter's proving that there are times in your life Or your spiritual preparation has to take priority over your physical rest. In Gethsemane, Peter chose to sleep rather than prepare. And so he enters that courtyard unprepared and does things he swore he never would do. He chose to sleep instead of pray, and it's something that we can all admit to as well. In no way do I want to deny our creatureliness. You need breath, you need water, you need food, you need sleep. 
This is not a sermon saying just never sleep again and be as holy as possible. That's not what's going on. But if you were asked why you don't pray more or read more, meditate more, memorize more scripture, would your answer have something to do with physical rest? I don't wake up early because I'll be too tired during the day or I don't stay up later because I'll be, I'm tired from the day or whatever it is. How often does your pursuit of physical rest get in the way of your spiritual preparation? Again, Peter's pride made him ignore the dangers that were headed his way, and they led him to ignore the prescribed means of preparing by prayer in Gethsemane. Peter was tired. It was a long day, and those are legitimate realities. But Jesus said, you need to stay awake and pray. Imagine if Peter had turned to Jesus and said, but Lord, I'm really tired. Jesus most likely would have said, me too. But the moment at hand calls for us to say no to sleep and yes to prayer. So again, ask yourself, how might you learn from Peter in this situation? Do you see yourself as sacrificing spiritual good on the altar of physical rest? Again, not to condemn your need for rest. You need rest, but I don't mind saying you often need less of it than you think. You always need more spiritual preparation than you think. Again, this is similar to what Jesus said when he said, if it calls for it, your pursuit of holiness should cause you to cut your right hand off and gouge your right eye out. That's not a condemnation of right hands and right eyes. They're, they're generally very useful. God gave them to us. He wants us to use them. They're not bad. But Jesus is saying it's better for you to go into heaven without a hand and without an eye than to go whole-bodied into hell. And the similar point here is not a condemnation of rest, but you'd rather go into heaven with bags under your eyes than go to hell well-rested. Now again, I'll let you answer before the Lord. I don't have a, here's eight things that need to be true about your calendar. That's not at all where I want to go. But just ask, Lord, help me think through this. Are there areas in my life where I use understandable excuses to my spiritual harm? Learn from Peter's laziness. But as I said earlier, If all we do is watch Peter and learn from Peter, we fail to grasp what's truly remarkable about this passage. So, of course, let the laziness and pride of Peter humble and awaken you. But look beyond Peter and look to Christ. Number three, let the love of Christ encourage you. Now, to see what I mean, I'm going to do what I said isn't the main point, but we still need to do it. I want to compare Judas and Peter. Both were Jews, both were called to be disciples, both were made apostles, both went out and preached, both went out and did miracles, both lived with Jesus basically for three and a half years. They saw Jesus' miracles, they heard Jesus' teaching, and then at the end of life, both of them abandoned Christ, both of them fear man over God, both of them sin in heinous ways. After they do that, they both regret it, they both show, show signs of contrition, And so the question is, why are they different? Why is it that many of us, if I said, do you expect to meet Peter in heaven? Yes. Do you expect to meet Judas in heaven? No. Why do we see them do such similar things and then expect they have two totally different eternities? Some of you are thinking in your head right now, well, because Peter repented and Judas didn't. And I want to tell you, you're right. (laughs) That's not wrong I'm just trying to suggest to you that's not a good enough answer. 
You would be correct that Peter did repent. He did. You would be correct that Judas didn't. He did not. He exercised 2 Corinthians 7 worldly grief that leads to death. Peter exercised godly grief that leads to life. So not all grief is created equally. But there's a better answer that we need to dig into, and that's what we see when we look at the passion narratives around the different Gospels. It's true that Peter repented, but didn't Paul tell Timothy that repentance is a gift? So Peter repented, Judas didn't, but again, we could ask, why was God gracious to Peter and grant him repentance, but not Judas? For this, turn to Luke 22. You can leave Matthew. Luke 22. There's a better answer than what Peter did. In Luke 22, we see a parallel passage to the upper room discourse. So remember, we just read Peter betraying him in Caiaphas' courtyard five or so hours earlier, six hours earlier, they're in the upper room. Luke 22, verse 31, notice what Jesus says. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. So Satan wants to sift Peter like wheat, which, again, I'm from Georgia, not Kansas. Be kind to me. I do understand that sifting wheat is a very painful process if you're wheat. It involves a lot of pressure, abuse, pain, crushing. But it's ultimately good. We want to get the wheat out. We want to get the chaff away. And Jesus says, Peter, that's what Satan wants to do with you. And I can imagine being Peter going, but you told him no, right? Peter, Satan wants to sift you, but relax. I said, don't touch Peter. That's not what Jesus says. Verse 32, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. In other words, Peter, you will go through this. It will be painful. It will crush you. But I'm promising you this. It won't be a fatal crushing. The reason is because I've prayed for you. I prayed that when you come out on the other side of the satanic sifting, that your faith will not be found failing. And God listens to my prayer. I'm his beloved son. God sent me to find you and keep you, and I will do that. Jesus prayed for Peter. This is why he didn't fatally fall. That's why he, like Judas, fell, but his fall wasn't fatal. Because Jesus prayed for him. Not because his sin was just far less heinous than Judas's. Not because Peter's heart was just better than Judas's. It's because Jesus is a perfect Savior. He always finds and keeps his people. Again, for some of us, this is harder to swallow than it is to see But Jesus says, I prayed for you, Peter. And he explicitly says, I didn't pray for Judas. Turn with me to John 17. Keep going to your right. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John 17. In John 17, again, just to give you some context, they've left the upper room. They're headed to Gethsemane. And on the way, Jesus prays what we often call the Lord's Prayer or his high priestly prayer in John 17. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 12. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So Jesus is praying to the Father. And he says, Father, I've not lost any that you gave me, except that one, that one being Judas, his being lost was purposeful. It fulfilled scripture. 
But other than that, I've not lost any that you gave me, clearly referring to the other 11 disciples. Look back at verse 9. Jesus says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Again, at this moment, it seems limited to the disciples. Jesus was given these disciples, these 12, and none of them were lost. Only one, Judas was, so we're referring to the 11 at this moment. This proves that Jesus is not just coming to live and die as a substitute for his people. He's also functioning as a high priest for his people. Jesus is a high priest and an effective high priest at that. In the Old Testament, the the priest would make the sacrifice, but they weren't done. They would then take that sacrifice that was offered and apply it to the people for whom it was offered. And so we rightly make a big deal of Jesus coming to live and die for us. We absolutely have to. But that's not the end of his high priestly work. Jesus, as our great high priest, came to live and die as a substitutionary sacrifice. But he wasn't done with that. Like a good, faithful high priest that he is, he then goes and makes sure it gets applied to his people. And he prays for his people. Look at verse 20. I do not ask for these only, so these being the eleven. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So these 11 are going to have a ministry of a word, and there's going to be more people who come to me through their word, which is every Christian in this room right now. Jesus, as our good high priest, explicitly says, I'm not praying for anyone else, including Judas. I'm praying for those you gave me, Father. And it's not just these 11. It's everyone else who comes to me through their word. He says in verse 20, this is about all Christians. That means everyone who has genuinely come to Christ has the guarantee from God himself that Jesus didn't just live for you. He didn't just die for you and rise for you. He also made sure that sacrifice was applied for you and he prays for you to keep you. Again, Jesus as our great high priest will never fail. He's never going to plead for people that the plea fails in what he's praying for. Again, you'll fail. You have moments and sometimes seasons of unfaithfulness, but Jesus doesn't. And that's what makes Peter different than Judas. That's why you, as a sinning Christian, are different than Judas. It's not because you're incapable of sinning in heinous ways. It's not because in your heart is just uh, more inclined to repent after sin. That's not the difference. It's the fact that you have a perfect Savior who is eternally committed to you. He has been before the world was created, and he will be long after the foundations are destroyed. Again, in an unexpected way on my journey through Matthew, Peter's fall, as devastating as it was, it ended up being a great encouragement. Because it shows me how one of the best from among us fails so miserably, and Jesus still longs to be with him. Jesus stays committed to Peter even through his denials. Again, Jesus came to save sinners. That's who his people are. They're great sinners who have an even greater Savior, and that's why we're secure. That's why Jesus' love must encourage you because it reminds you that at no point in your life were you ever doing well enough to deserve God's grace. And it reminds you in Christ, there's no point you're doing bad enough that you lose it. Judas stands as an example that no matter how convincing you are in your religious life, if you fail to come to Christ, you'll never benefit from him. 
But Peter stands as an example to show that no matter how poorly you live your Christian life, no matter how heinously you sin against the Lord you truly do love, you can never out his grace. And Peter was convinced of this. That's why he came back in genuine faith and repentance. Because he knew he'd be received. Even after abandoning Christ, after denying Christ, after looking at his puffy, bruised, and cut, and bleeding eyes, after looking on that face that has blood and soldier spits running, spit running down it, even after knowing Jesus heard everything he said, he saw what he did, Peter was still compelled to come back to Christ. And it's because he knew Jesus is a greater Savior than we are sinners. Christ promised full and complete forgiveness for all who come to him, and that included Peter, and that included Thomas Cranmer. Now, we left him a long time ago, but I didn't finish the story. Thomas Cranmer, the one who signed his apostasy with ink, right after he did that, almost immediately, he recanted again of his recanting. So he went back and was like, never mind. And so Mary, predictably, said, well, you too will burn. And so five months after watching Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley burn at the stake, Thomas Cranmer goes to the stake. And according to history, as he approached it, he said these words, As my hand offended in writing, contrary to my heart, it shall be burned first. And he intentionally stuck his hand into the flames first. As you know, that kind of resolve didn't come from him. We saw what comes from him earlier when he signed the document. He arrived at that stake by grace, the same grace that Peter needed, the same grace you need. Again, Matthew records Peter's failing here. History records Cranmer's failing And I'm guessing if we recorded your failings, like John says of Jesus, all the world couldn't hold all the books. And so what is your hope in these moments? What do you turn to when as a Christian you've sworn, I'll never do that again and you find yourself doing it? Or I'll never go that deep into it and you find yourself there. What do you turn to? What do you do? Peter's showing us turn to Christ. Turn to the one that in spite of all that is still ready and willing to receive you again. Again, the same way Jesus promised to meet Peter after Peter failed, he promises to meet us again. In those moments where you feel like you don't deserve God's grace, all I can say is amen. You never did. You just felt like you did a little bit, and this has taken that away. And you say, well, I don't deserve what kindness Christ is giving me. Absolutely you don't. And he still freely, willingly, excitingly gave it to us. Again, It just took this kind of experience to make you taste a little bit more of how undeserving you are of God's amazing grace. So as many times as you have failed Christ, as much as you have betrayed Christ by loving and fearing other gods, Jesus still loves you and wants you to be with him. Again, he still loves to give his grace to you over and over again until you're glorified and with him forever. That's why we have security in Christ. It's not because heinous sins are out of your reach. It's not because repentance is just more firmly rooted in your heart. and You're more likely to come back after you sin. It's because Jesus is a perfect Savior who certainly will find his people. He'll keep his people. And one of the ways he does that is he prays for his people. Jesus prayed for Peter, and Peter stayed with Christ, and Jesus prays for all those who come to him through the word of the apostles. That's why we're secure, not because we're so great, but because Jesus is so great. Let me pray. Father, thank you for these reminders, these odd encouragements to see our sin 
to see the hopelessness that's in ourselves and to have that contrasted with the amazing promises you give us in Christ. Help us as believers to feel more and more how undeserving we are of the grace that you love to give to us. Convince our hearts that you are not withholding grace, you are not being stingy with grace. Convince our hearts that as those who are in Christ, you are excited to inherit your people. That you love to be kind to your children when they come to you for needs. Convince us of these things. And I pray for those in here who may have, like Judas, played the religious game well. They're convincing. They've convinced themselves or everyone around. I pray that you would keep them from falling into the same death trap he did, of failing to come to Christ, of living so close to him, of being around him so much and so often that they still fail to come to him. So help people in this room, help us all to come to Christ for the first time or for the millionth time and to confess our righteousness is in him alone. Our forgiveness is only possible because of the death he died in our place. And we know that these promises are secure because you you raised him from the dead. It's in his precious name we pray. Amen.